morning. Please open your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Haggai. This morning we'll be re- we'll be studying the whole first chapter, but for the sake of time to begin this morning, we'll re- we will read just the first six verses. So, as you're finding your place there, let's stand together and and we'll read that short portion of the first chapter, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our study. Haggai chapter one, verses one through six. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to build, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the timelessness of your word and how it always reaches us at just the right time and right place. And we pray for your help this morning that the Holy Spirit would use this text to help us evaluate our hearts and our lives that we would see clearly whether or not our our priority our first priority in life is building your house or building our own houses and father by a work of the holy spirit would you transform our desires in such a way that we would want nothing more than for your house to be built that you might be glorified and pleased in it. And would you change our hearts so that we would see that as a reward? We pray for your help this morning. We ask for it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, everybody lives their life According to priorities, we're we're making decisions all the time, every day, We make millions of them over the course of a lifetime. And those decisions are made according to our priorities. How many first priorities can you have? You can have one, right? I mean, any moron would tell you that. You can have one first priority Now we have a saying in in this country or our our, our culture. So-and-so is just looking out for number one. Now, who is number one in that saying? It's himself. He's looking out for himself. It's the defining human characteristic for self to be the number one priority in one's life. So 
making much of myself, shooting for the stars as it pertains to my particular dreams, uh, achieving my plans, that tends to be the number one priority in a person's life. And yet when we, when we go to the scriptures, we find Jesus saying things like, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And we, we would call that repentance. When we repent and follow Jesus Christ, we are actually putting aside our own wants and desires. We're denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following the Lord Jesus. Now, any of us who, who are followers of the Lord Jesus, we have done that. And yet, don't we find a daily struggle to maintain that posture toward the Lord? Am I the only one? Oh, hopefully not. Yes, thank you, Mitch. Uh, you and I. Mitch and I struggle with this. No, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they, they conspire together to, to pull us back to that natural bent of self-seeking all the time. We naturally drift. You know, there's, there, on, on the pathway of life, there's not an exit ramp with a sign that says, to seek self, get off here. It, it, it happens in a million little decisions that we're making all the time. We naturally drift in that direction. The reason that passages like Haggai 1 are so helpful to us is that they give us an opportunity to evaluate our current course and make corrections when necessary. And in these verses, the prophet calls us to consider the ordering and consequences of our priorities and to build God's house for God's glory as the preeminent mission of our lives. Now, we didn't get all the way through the chapter in, in, in our first reading, but twice in this chapter, Haggai writes, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Look at how you're living. Look at what your priorities are. This chapter is intended to provoke introspection, looking at our own hearts, an evaluation of our priorities and lives. And its first admonition, it's the first point in your notes, is consider your toil. Consider your toil. Which house are you building as a first priority? Which house are you building as a first priority? We'll look at verse 1 again. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now remember that Yahweh moved that pagan king Cyrus of Persia to rebuild his house, Yahweh's house in Jerusalem. We read about that last week back in Ezra chapter one. Cyrus gave not only his endorsement of that, pro of that project, but we, we could say he funded it. He said, Here, here's all the money that you need, and anybody that wants to, get yourselves down to Judah and build that thing. Okay, So just north of 42,000 Israelites journeyed back to Judah to do that glorious work. 
Now, the, these 42,000 were just a fraction of the people of God at the time. They were the faithful few, those who seriously, those who took seriously their covenant with Yahweh. And Ezra records their arrival, their building of the altar, their laying of the foundation of the temple, their offering sacrifices on the altar. But in Ezra 4, we read these words, Ezra 4, verses 4 and 5, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So now as, as things stand in Haggai chapter one, it has been 18 years since Cyrus decreed that this temple would be rebuilt. It has been 16 years since the foundation of the temple has been laid. All that time, the people of God have been living in Judah, but the house of God has lied in ruins. So pe people much smarter than me have determined that that date in, in, in verse 1 is or it equates to August 29th. 520 B.C. Isn't that interesting? Five, uh, August 29th, 520 B.C. is when the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the people, a corrective word to Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. And that word came in the form of, of, of a statement and a question. Now the statement we just read in verse 2, these people say, the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. The opposition and adversity will do this. You, you're, you're given a mission. The mission doesn't go quite like you planned and you're opposed to thing, things. Other things require your attention in no time. You're justifying putting off the mission, saying things to yourself like, you know, this really isn't the best time we're, we're, we're not giving up. We're just, we're just waiting until circumstances are more favorable. Then by, by default, that mission becomes a back burner item, a, a second or third tier priority. And in, in the case of any follower of the Lord, that's a presumptuous thing to say. The time has not yet come. Circumstances just don't allow. Th think about how presumptuous it is to say that when the Lord has said, build this house. Undoubtedly, the statement from Haggai woke, woke the people to an issue that had become very comfortable to ignore over the course of 16 years of activity, not building the temple temple became so natural that likely people forgot it was ever a thing. But with that statement in verse two, the people are reminded, right, that the temple is not built yet. And it's because we've chosen not to build it. And then comes a question from the Lord, which is a full on indictment in verse three. If you look down at verse three with me. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So have, have you determined that while it's not a time for you to rebuild God's house, it is a time for you to make yourselves comfortable. Is that the situation? You're building your own houses. The, the people had disordered priorities. That's what the Lord is exposing here. They, they put their own preferences and comfort above the work of the Lord. They have, they have paneled houses, and most scholars believe that what this means is that these are somewhat luxurious homes. They're nice places to live. While, in a sense, God has no house, 
that there is only room for one first priority, right? The, the, the task for which they were called back to Judah, which was the rebuilding of the house of God, the people have made it a back burner issue while they've become preoccupied with their own material prosperity. Now, we're going to see with, with the rest of these post-exilic prophets that the rebuilding of the physical temple is not the ultimate desire of God. We noted last week that the temple in the Old Testament has been interpreted by the New Testament authors to be a picture of the church. In the beginning, God created man to be his image bearer and and to enjoy fellowship with him. And with that very first rebellion by Adam, mankind was separated from God. And now we're all born rebels, just, just like Adam. And over and over, we, 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 we earn not only separation from God while on this earth, but we earn eternal separation from God in a literal physical hell. Now, the, the temple in the Old Testament was a picture of God's intent to once again live among his people. It was, it, was, it was a picture of his intent to give himself back. And all of the activities surrounding the temple were a picture of his intent to give himself back, including those sacrifices that took place at the temple. The animals sacrificed pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, God's own son who came to this earth, lived a perfect life of obedience to God, and who, and who died on the cross in the place of his people so that their sins could be forgiven and they could be reunited to God. Today, the church, the, the, the global body of believers, those who respond to the call of God, repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ unto reconciliation to God, they are the 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 fulfillment of the temple in a sense. God's intention is for the church, for that number to swell so that in the end, they all might enjoy him and worship him eternally as they were created to do. So that's God's trajectory for the gospel. Now, all of this in, in Haggai looks forward to the building of the true house of God, the, the church. Not a building, but the body of Christ. Just as the, re the returned exiles were tasked with rebuilding the house of God, so New Testament believers are tasked with building the body of Christ. And so it's appropriate for us as we read Haggai to ask ourselves, where does our first priority lie? Pastor Rick read from Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, which, which teaches that we've, we've all been gifted in, in, in certain ways so as to contribute to the growth of the church. And that growth only happens as each individual member of the body is working properly. The, the, the church is not designed to, to grow and thrive while only a few members are sharing the gospel with the lost that they might be saved. And only a few members are ministering the gospel to the saved that they might grow into maturity. And yet, that is the circumstance in many local churches throughout the world. Just a few are working properly. Implicitly, those not laboring to build the body of Christ are saying, the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. 
So I, I would I would encourage you, as, as I've done this this week, ask yourself, in what ways am I building the body of Christ at Providence Bible Fellowship? What what lost people are you praying for regularly and engaging with the truth? What people do you regularly meet with at PBF for the purpose of stirring one another up to love and good works? If building the house of the Lord, the body of Christ, is our first priority, we will do those things. We, we make time for what is most important to us. We will find those things on our calendar if this is our first priority. I wonder what goes through our minds when season after season we continue to have other higher priorities while regularly hearing the call from God's word to build his house. I'll, I'll, I'll get involved in other people's lives as soon as things calm down at work. We're, we're, we're just so busy right now with the kids' sports. We'll, we'll begin to really sow gospel seeds with our neighbors as, as soon as our schedule isn't so crazy. May I suggest that those thoughts are not very different from the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. And to those of us who have prioritized other things, the scriptures would ask the question, is it then a time for you to pursue your own agenda? To be about your own kingdom? Consider your toil, Haggai would, would implore us. Toward what end are you investing the best part of yourself? Which house are you building as your first priority? Second, the, the prophet calls us to consider our results. Consider our results. Are you satisfied building your own house while neglecting his? Are you satisfied building your own house while neglecting his? Verse 5 now. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Is that ironic? The, the, the more people sought self-satisfaction, the more it eluded them. They, they were all about building their own houses and improving their own station in life. They poured themselves into themselves. But what did they harvest? They, they harvested little, never had enough. They were never filled. They were never warm, never prospered. Let's skip down to verse 9. We'll come back to verse 7 and 8 in a moment. Look at verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors." This, this has not been a random misfortune of the people, but, but the Lord reveals that he himself has prevented their labors from being fruitful. Now, here's a pivotal truth. It's worth writing down. It's not in your notes. God graciously will not allow us 
to be fully satisfied outside of him. God graciously will not allow us to be fully satisfied outside of him. Why is that? Because he created us to be satisfied in him. To be satisfied in earthly things goes against our design. Psalm 16 teaches that chasing after other things only leads to a multiplying of our sorrows. So when God causes our idols to fail us, he's doing, doing us a, a, a gracious service. So by, by denying them material wealth, God's actually pointing them back to the one thing that can satisfy them, and that is him. You think to, the, to King Solomon, who had everything that a human being could desire, everything that a man could desire. Did he find those things to be fulfilling? Just read the book of Ecclesiastes. Satisfaction for the human being can only come through knowing, fearing, and loving God in Jesus Christ. If you've if you prioritize temporal, temporal pursuits above the Lord and, and his work building the church, you, you just can't expect those temporal pursuits to satisfy. Put yourself into your work, achieve the success that you crave. You, you will end up with the same conclusion as Solomon, and that is it's all just a striving after wind. It, it's completely empty. Now, let me, let me be clear. We're not condemning the wise stewardship of our time and finances, not at all. Working hard and saving for retirement, managing your money well. Not only is there nothing wrong with those things, but Proverbs teaches that if you don't do those things, you're a fool. The question is, what is the focus of your life, your, your top priority? What are you pouring your life out for? Is it building an eternal kingdom in the form of, of, of uh, sharing the gospel with, with the lost so that they, that they might be saved and sharing the gospel with the saved that they might be grown into Christ's likeness? Or is it an earthly kingdom in the form of a top flight career or giving your kids all the things you didn't have or chasing one distraction after another? If it's the latter, you're investing yourself primarily in temporal things. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper tells a true story about a man converted in his, in his old age. He, many people had prayed for this man for decades through, through many years of his steadfastly resisting the gospel. But one Sunday, by God's grace, he went to church. He heard the gospel again. The Lord broke his heart and claimed him. He was saved, but mixed with the joy of salvation was regret. And as the man sat at the altar, he sobbed, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. Now, it is a tragedy for a person to have so little time to live for God's glory. Imagine how much more bitter would be the tears of a person converted as a young man or woman, realizing on their deathbed that in spite of knowing Christ for decades, they invested in things that will die with them. For them, 
how much more bitter would be those words. I have, I've wasted it. Don't swallow the lie that fulfillment is found in avoiding pain and attaining creature comforts and entertaining yourself. Fulfillment comes from knowing Christ and making him known. A third item that the, the prophet brings before us, consider your call. What should be the great aim of your work? Consider your call. What should be the great aim of your work? Back to verse 7 now. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Now the Lord, the Lord has exposed the the disordered priorities of the people. And here he explains what should be first. He, he commands it to be more accurate. We might deduce from earlier verses that God's ultimate desire is for his house to be built. We, we, we could gather an implied imperative from verses two through four. Stop seeking your own kingdom. Start seeking mine. Build my house. But now in verses seven and eight, the Lord emphasizes not merely building the house, but Build the house that I may be glorified and that I may take pleasure in it. Building the house is to be the first priority, but there is an appropriate reason to do that. It is to please and glorify God. Now that sheds light on what is actually our design when we pursue our own agenda. We want to please and glorify ourselves. The, the, the choice to be about my mission or to be about God's mission is the choice to either please and glorify me or please and glorify God. Glorifying and pleasing God, these are, not, these are not concepts that are relegated to the Old Testament. They find a repeated expression in the New Testament. And once again, to, to glorify God simply means that his glory is magnified. His, his fame is declared by our lives. I want to give you just a few references for, for the, the idea that our lives are to be all about glorifying God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Ephesians 3, 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Now, pleasing God is related, but it's different. When we seek to please God, we're not just wanting to magnify who he is, but we actually want him to derive pleasure from our lives. And we find that idea in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. Just as we've been approved by man to be entrusted with the gospel, so we, we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests the hearts. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. 
Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Please God more and more. As, as New Covenant believers, our lives are to be about these very things, not seeking to please and glorify ourselves. Now, we, we do need to be careful as, as we look at, at, at this passage. There's not an implicit promise here which would say to us, Build the Lord's house so that you can have material prosperity. You know, if, you, if, you, if you've looked closely at this as we've read, he identifies for them the reason that they don't have wine and oil and grain and all of these things is because his house lies in ruins. They're living in their nice houses. There's not an implied promise here that if you'll just build the Lord's house, you're going to have material prosperity. The payoff or the incentive to build the Lord's house is not so that we'll get what we want. He, he has just, in verses 7 and 8, told us the proper motive. We build the house so that God will be glorified and so that he will be pleased. Now, here's the glorious thing about this. We are not surrendering joy or fulfillment when we build God's house for his glory as our first priority. Far from it. When we do that, we are chasing joy and fulfillment. When we talk about building God's house, ultimately we are talking about both growing the number of worshipers of God and growing them in Christ's likeness. For, for the person who loves God, those two things are intensely pleasurable. Those two things being worshiping God and becoming like him. They, they are the highest of pleasures. My, my mind goes again to, to Psalm 16. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, God loves us too much to call us to build his house for his glory and his pleasure and then reward us with lesser joy that might come from temporal material things. No, he rewards us with more of himself. Many of you are familiar with Psalm 37, 4, which reads, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. Some read that verse the way that we might misunderstand Haggai 1, and that is that if we just orient our heart correctly toward the Lord, he'll give us the temporal things that we want. Not at all. That misunderstands what it means to delight in the Lord. If you delight in the Lord, he is your great, great desire. All the other desires are properly then subordinated. If you delight yourself in the Lord, the desires of your heart will be the things of the Lord. And, and he'll pour them out on you. Material things, fame, worldly success, those things will be meaningful, meaningless to you. Even if they were offered to you, you wouldn't want them. Now, if you've read Haggai for the last week or so since we started this series, you may wonder why God promises the people what looks like material prosperity in 2.19. Looks like he does pr promise them material prosperity for building the temple in 2.19. Well, all of those things mentioned in 2.19 are not only measures of wealth, but implements of worship in the temple. And so, Lord willing, I'll be, making, I'll be using the other prophets to make a case in chapter 2 that God is not simply promising material prosperity, but flourishing worship. That's, that's the real reward of building God's house. Knowing God, making him known, that's our 
priority. If we delight ourselves in the Lord, if we build his house so that he might be glorified and pleased, we have our reward because our desires are in line with his. Finally, consider your course. Consider your course. What would he have you to do? Consider your course. What would he have you to do? Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Haggai's message drew a distinct response, not only from Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest, but from the entire remnant. They responded, first of all, we might say with the right attitude, which is to listen and fear. The right attitude is to listen and fear. If you look at the text, it reads that they obeyed the voice of the Lord. And the word underlining that English word obeyed is more literally listened. We, we, we tend to think of obedience as doing something outward. Uh, there's nothing outward, though, that happened here. Their first response was a disposition of the heart. They listened. That is, they, they received and accepted the word of the Lord. Now, th this is the same way that we use the word listen when we say something like, yeah, so-and-so, he, he just won't listen to reason. Now, when, when we say that, we don't mean he, he just won't engage his faculty of auditory perception. No, what we mean he, he won't receive and be molded by reason. It, it's, a, it's a statement about the heart, not the hearing. And it's the same thing here. That they obeyed does not mean that they started to build the temple because that happens later. Rather, it means that they softened their hearts and received the word of the Lord. They, they listened and the people feared the Lord, the text says. This, this again is a movement of the heart and it consists not of cowering in terror, but rightly understanding the lordship of almighty God and assuming their rightful place in submission to his lordship. So what, what we're seeing here with the people listening and, and fearing is essentially repentance. The people repented upon hearing the message of Haggai. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, says the Lord. Do you remember the report of the spies sent out to spy out the land all the way back in Numbers 13? Ten of the twelve reported, We are not able to go against the people of the land, for they are stronger than we are. We cannot do this. Now, the, the other two spies, Caleb and Joshua, how did they respond? This is in Numbers 14, verses 8 and 9. They said, If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Yahweh is with us. Now, according to Ezra 4, 4, 
It was fear of the people of the land once again that had stopped the people from doing what God called them to do. Fear of the people of the land stopped them from rebuilding the temple. Here the Lord gives them what they need to return to the work. He gives them the right confidence, which is his presence. The right confidence is God's own presence. Doing the work of the Lord is always going to entail fearful things in a human sense. How, how do you move past that and, and fulfill your calling? Well, you do what the Israelites did here and what they didn't do back in Numbers. You fear God and embrace the right confidence. God is with us. There, there are a couple of crucial things to catch here. First, God is assuring them of his presence before there's a temple. Think about that. God doesn't need a temple. Luke, Luke records... Paul's words in Acts 17 saying the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And yet he wants man to build him a temple. All, all of that again indicates that the temple is a symbol of God's presence with his people and, and we'll see in chapter 2 it points to the real house of God the new covenant people the church. The second thing is that we enjoy God's presence. We, the, the New Testament church, enjoy God's presence in a way that the people in the Old Testament did not, in, in, in the fullness of the indwelling spirit. We, we have all the more reason to enjoy the right confidence in the Lord's presence. Now, that confidence then leads to what? Verse 14 tells us. Look at verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The, the right heart, attitude, and the right confidence gives birth to the right action. The people build. The right action is building. If you pay attention to the date formulas at the beginning of this chapter and then the one at the end, you'll see a gap. Again, the, 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 the calendar geniuses have figured out that the first one was August 29. This one at the end of the chapter is September 21st. That's over three weeks. Now, does, does that mean that there, there was delayed obedience here? So they, they heard the word of the Lord in August. They don't build until over three weeks later. Now, many of us have never built a building, okay? So, let's think about this. To, to build a structure requires some planning, some organization, requires the, the acquiring of the, the needed materials. When you take all of that into account, this is a remarkably quick resumption of the building of the temple. The, the, these people were passionate about the work. And they got busy building. And how kind is the Lord? Look at, look at that text again in verse 14. He is right at the center. He stirred their spirits up. That's the same language that we found in Ezra 1. He re-motivated them. He re-empowered them to be about the right things. Wasting your life is, is a series of small decisions. We're making these decisions all the time drift from the right first priority. It just happens naturally. We, we need Haggai.
We need this first chapter of Haggai. We need to return to it often and consider these things. For what am I toiling as the first priority of my life? Have I drifted of late into being primarily about me? I can diagnose an answer to that question by asking this. Can I point to any regular, meaningful, personal investment in the work of the Lord? By praying for and evangelizing the lost around me or giving of myself to others that they might know more of Jesus. If I, if I can't point to those things, I'm building the wrong house. Another question to, to consider regularly. What's the state of my satisfaction in life? If it's low, it's likely that I'm looking for satisfaction in the wrong kind of work. We don't see the apostles in the New Testament suffering from a satisfaction de deficit. They, they delighted in the Lord, so his work was their joy. They, they were just like Jesus who said in, in John 4, my food is to do the work of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The, the, the work is the reward because we get more of him as we participate with him in the building of his house. Another question to ask repeatedly, what should be the great mission in my life? If I believe the Bible and submit to its truth, I should recognize and embrace that I have been bought with a price. I'm not my own. My life doesn't belong to me. His work should be my life work. And my highest aspiration should be his glory and pleasure. Maybe you find yourself this morning honestly saying, Right now, I don't want God to be glorified. If I'm being honest, I, I, I don't think of pleasing him as anywhere close to my highest priority. So what do you do? Pray, 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 and beg the Lord to change your heart. He, he is a changer of hearts. That, that's a prayer that gets answered. Lord, to change my heart. Work in me so that I want to glorify you. I want to please you and not myself. A final question to consider repeatedly. What should I do in response to these things? Listen to the word of God from Haggai calling you to something better. Receive his word. Embrace its truth. The Lord is calling you to a good thing. So, so fear him. Understand that he is the almighty Lord of all creation. Your posture toward him should be one of submission in all things. Have confidence that he is with you. He will empower you for the work. And then get out your calendar and schedule the work. Schedule it. Now in a moment, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pray. And then we will we'll spend a, a few moments in silent reflection. And then we'll sing a final song. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and how you have accommodated your word so frequently to our tendency to drift toward self-centeredness.
We pray, Lord, that as we reflect on these things in the coming moments, that you would continue to work on our hearts. That we would be honest with ourselves and with you about our first priority. You would call us back to building your house. That if there are those of us, Father, who don't desire above all things that you would be glorified and pleased, that you would do that in us by your indwelling Holy Spirit. We thank you for his gift. We pray, Father, that the, the gospel would, would be our constant meditation and motivation to do these things, to, to build the house. We pray, Father, that Providence Bible Fellowship would be a place known as a collection of believers committed to expanding the kingdom of God, sharing the gospel with the lost that they might be saved, and sharing the gospel with one another that they might grow up into maturity in Jesus. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.